news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to another Books with Hooks segment. As per usual, we are diving straight in. Carly, will you kick us off with the first query? Dear Carly, I'm submitting my project to you because of your strong presence in the women's fiction genre. I'm particularly enamored with Taylor Jenkins Reid's early work, Forever Interrupted, Maybe in Another Life, One Drew Loves, exactly the type of deeply emotional women's fiction I love to both read and write. Marsha's third act is an 84,000 word commercial women's fiction. Let me say that again. Marsha's third act, an 84,000 word commercial women's fiction, is Eat, Pray, Love meets the Golden Girls. Marsha needs to reinvent herself for her third act after suffering devastating losses. At least she has her three best friends by her side. The story is in Marsha's POV with a chat string at the end of each chapter showing the perspective of her friends. Marsha's third act will appeal to those who appreciate an older protagonist, an underserved market, like Astrid in Straub's All Adults Here or Vivi in Ellen Hildebrand's Golden Girl. Marsha turns 60, grieving the recent deaths of her husband and mother and her once successful career as a marriage counselor tainted by spurious accusations from a former client. Supported by her besties, she tries to piece together what to do next. An old letter from her father, whom she hadn't seen in over 50 years, alludes to a secret. With nothing keeping her in Vancouver, she leaves for England to look for the father she doesn't remember and to unravel the mystery. It won't hurt to escape 
what has become the smothering influence of her friends, there can be too much of a good thing, worried about her fragile state, they make every effort to find her, despite Marsha's request to the contrary. In England, Marsha forges new friendships, even meeting an interesting man, Michael, who is definitely not a love interest. The search for her father is ultimately successful but disappointing, and then things go awry with Michael. Just when everything seems lost, a letter arrives, which leads to a meeting where she learns the meaning of her father's letter. But the answers shake her. Her faithful friends, who have never stopped looking for her, arrive just in time to support her and help her discover who she will be in her third act. Having just retired after 35 years of practicing law, I am starting my own third act. Recently, I was awarded second prize in the 2021 Advocate Short Fiction Contest. I'm a member of Women's Fiction Writers Association and live outside Vancouver with my husband, our university-aged kids, and our Maltese mix Finnegan, who can never get enough treats. Same applies to me, actually. I attach my first five pages and look forward to your feedback, Connie Hill. Great, Carly. Thank you. Okay, can you give us an indication of the word count and then what you thought of the query letter? All right, everybody. This one comes in at 439 words and Connie actually wrote it in for me so I didn't have to do the math myself today. I really, I really like this title. I, I really like it when characters' names are in the title. I don't know. It's just a thing that I like. So I like, I like Marcia's third act. One thing that I found a bit vague about this query letter is... Well, first of all, it has one, two, three, four, five paragraphs. So it ends up being like a lot of blocks of content that we're trying to to share here. So we have the like introduction to myself, why I'm querying you. And then we get into kind of the hookiness and the comps and all of that. That's a kind of a long paragraph. And in there it says her third act after suffering devastating losses. And that's pretty vague. And so if we're going to write a hook, we kind of have to write a hook. I think that's going to really explore the stakes a little bit. I don't know. I just found a little bit, I don't know. I just didn't think it was as strong as, as that part could have been. So th- that's why I think we could either trim that up a little bit and just get to the actual plot of the book or that hook needs to come across a little bit stronger. All right. So I like that. Obviously, everything is coming to a head here, right? There's a lot of major, major things in her life. But why does the letter surface now? It's an old letter from her father. Hasn't seen the father 50 years. It just feels a little coincidental to me to be like, the whole life is imploding and now is the time to go explore this letter. So if that's not the case, maybe make it a little bit more clear that there's nothing coincidental about it. I think that would help. Also, not sure why we specify that Michael is definitely not a love interest. I don't know if that is specifically to kind of ward off any kind of assumptions that it might be a romance novel, but I don't know. It just felt a little like, why did we have to point that on the nose kind of thing? I just wasn't sure, wasn't sure about why we needed that. But again, sometimes with queries, there's so much more going on beneath the surface that we don't know. So there might be a reason for that, but I'm just letting you know how that comes across. Ultimately, this book really is about female friendship. And so I like that the ending, we bring it back to that the faithful friends who have never stopped looking for her arrive in time so i like the third act bit and i like the friendship and i think overall it's it's really strong it has a really strong brand to it because not only is the book about kind of having a third act but this author is also having a third act so i thought all of that came together really strongly yay for connie Woo! okay will you give us an indication of what was in those opening pages All right, so we start at our character Marsha's 60th birthday party. There's a cake there. We find out that kind of everybody, or at least, you know, a large group of people at the party had actually just been together a week before for her mother's funeral. So there's an exciting vibe for for Marsha turning 60, but also a bit of a sad vibe because of her mother's passing. And then we get into just a bit of the friends, kind of introducing a little bit of each of the friends to the reader. And then all of a sudden there's a commotion at the door and a woman kind of barges in and we get kind of that marriage counseling uh, part of the hook that was introduced in the query letter, which is this woman storms in. 
And she is kind of uh, attacking or accusing Marsha of being a bad therapist because her husband, who was she was in counseling with, recently died by suicide, which is kind of really sad, obviously. So there's a lot happening at this party and everything kind of coming together at a head in these first five pages. Wow. Okay. So what was your take on them? All right. So starting off at the top here, one thing I wanted to point out, which I always like to point out because I think when it's done well, it's done really well, is how you can introduce what a character looks like without being like, she was tall with brown hair, you know, that kind of thing. So I think Connie did a really good job here. So I just want to kind of explain how she did that. So there's a birthday cake and she said, Donna had outdone herself with a cake creating a caricature of Marsha with her platinum hair and signature purple spectacles. She recognized the photo it was based upon, the author photo from her second book. That was just an incredible amount of information, really smartly done through the lens of like the cake without saying like, she has platinum hair, you know, and these spectacles, you know, I don't know. I just really subtle, but really, really, really well done. So I just really wanted to draw attention to that because that was great. So one thing, you know, we talked about this on the podcast in many different forms is how grief shows up on the pages. And I just want to remind our author here that just so you know, we don't feel any grief here because we don't know the mother character. You know, we don't know the husband character that had passed away. So we essentially feel nothing but the fact that we are seeking information. So I just want to remind you of that because if you're trying to lean on the fact that like, oh, the reader's going to be feeling a lot here. Actually, we're not really feeling that much because we don't know these people, right? So just a point of information there. I think we need to cut the parts about like the day-to-day stuff where her friend Deb cuts in and says like, can we go for a walk this week? Oh, it's been a while since we've gone for a walk. When are you off? What days? And they like bounce back and forth with their schedule. That's the kind of stuff I don't I don't think we need at all. I know the kind of the point is probably to introduce the best friend characters and you know more information about them I don't know it just didn't work for me I do think we should move up the commotion of the patient of Marsha storming in the door a little bit earlier but I do worry that it's a bit of a pile on we got like two deaths and a birthday and like it's all happening at the same time so it's that's a bit hard to navigate as a reader again wondering if this is too coincidental for everything to land in the exact same moment when as the reader we're still kind of making our way through our own feelings about this Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. All right, Cece, we will now go to your first query letter. Will you please read that for us? Dear Cece, I am desperately trying to keep this query short and sweet, and so I cannot gush too hard on how much I adore the shit no one tells you about writing, but I promise the love is there. Beneath the Night is a 100,000-word adult fantasy loosely based on West African mythology that will appeal to fans of Tony Adeyemi's the Children of the Bone, and N.K. Jasmine's The Hundred Thousand Kingdoms. Ja'ara lives in a world where those bestowed certain powers by the gods are hunted down and enslaved for their gifts. Newly captured, Ja'ara is forced aboard a slave ship where she is soon sold to the king of all kings. Intrigued by her rare gift to sense any living thing around her, human or otherwise, he gives her a task that, if completed, will win her his favor for life, protecting her from the many horrors of the extensive slave trade that keeps the kingdoms running. But Ja'ara doesn't want favor. She wants her freedom, and she's willing to fight for it, even if it means seducing a visiting prince from another nation and venturing with him and his men into the Tongo lands a dark and cursed woodland, to fetch what rumors say only someone with her gifts can retrieve. But when the king of all kings sends his most powerful slave to ensure she returns, they grow close, 
despite Ja'ara's wavering loyalty after the prince offers her another path to freedom. As Ja'ara's task grows more precarious and nations move against one another in pursuit for power, she becomes caught between the many bargains she has struck and soon learns that there is more than her freedom at stake if she loses. Beneath the Night is my debut novel and a direct result of being starved for representation in a genre that has always captivated me. Why not write something for girls like us? A friend asked. And to my delight, and so many more fantasy stories with people of color have emerged while I did so. And I am unashamedly eager to add to the list. I graduated from sunny Brockport with a bachelor's in journalism and have since worked for various media outlets as a copy editor. An avid traveler with the goal to set foot on every continent before the age of 30, I'm either planning my next quest or writing about them. Either way, an adventure always awaits. Thank you for your time and consideration. Sincerely, J.G. Harris. Awesome, Cece. Thank you. Okay, an indication of word count and then your take on that query. This is clocking in at 418 words. I have very few notes for this query letter because it's really excellent. I know exactly what's going on. I know who the protagonist is. I have a perfect sense of the story, of how the plot moves, of how the plot escalates. I have a major dramatic question. My one note, just so I'm not totally useless, is the second paragraph, second plot paragraph. It begins with, but Ja'ara doesn't want favor. Make that accept instead of but, because you already have a but when the king of all kings in the next paragraph. Truly, that is the value that I'm adding today. It's sad. So congratulations. It's excellent. It's amazing. And I'm hearing more and more from listeners how their query letters and opening pages are being polished up and how good they're getting after kind of binge listening to the podcast because they start to hear our voices in their heads, which is pretty damn scary because I would hate to have myself, Carly and Cece in, in, in my head all the time. But when we get these kind of queries, it's, it's proof of that, which is wonderful. Okay, Cece, what was in those opening pages? All right, so we have a protagonist, Ja'ara. She is bound by chains. She's on a ship. She's counting time. There's no sunlight, so the only way she can count time is by figuring out the movement of the men above her, her captors. There's a reference that she's waiting for the day. This is not capitalized, not uppercase. There's a group of young men next to her also. Obviously, everyone's bound and everyone's in chains. Planning an escape, she considers this a poor escape plan because they've only been captured recently, so they don't understand, in her opinion, how hard it is. One of the captors walks in, one of the captured men tries to attack him, but the captor kills the captured man. And Jara can see his essence because we know from the query letter that she has that power. There's a girl crying next to her. Jara wished she would choke only to shut up. That's that's obviously how scared she is. I'm interpreting the scared part. There's a cockroach that's walking on top of her body. One of the men next to her grabs the cockroach to eat it. Eventually the captors arrive and they say, are on your feet and everyone goes to the deck. And that's where the five pages end. Wow. Okay. So what was your take on them? <sighs> okay. So I want to start by saying that this was really hard to read. This is not a reference on the quality. Obviously, it's it's just a subject matter. This is a really tough subject matter to read. I like that we were always immersed in scene. I like that we were very clearly immersed in Ja'ara's point of view. I have notes, right? So my first note is, does she have a goal? Or for example, 
when she said she was waiting for the day, does she mean a specific day? Because when I read that line, I wasn't sure if she meant I'm waiting for dawn, like the next day in her counting, or a specific day. I would love to get a little bit more on that so her observations tie together with her story forward intentions. I'm mindful that she's a captured person, so of course there's only so much agency she can have, but she can have agency in her interiority if only in her intentions. I would also love for her memories to be more specific. There's an example in which she's thinking of the village she left behind. And the line we get is something like, the village would be well into summer now, the fields would be tall and ripe, and she was sure the local children were making quick work of the sweet grasses. This is super well written, but I think that all she has right now are her memories. That's the only thing she has. So I think she'd be thinking of specifics, a specific person she left behind. Or even if she's thinking of a group of children, it would just be... I keep saying the word specific, but yeah, there would be more specificity. I would really like to see that because it would really add to her characterization. I also wondered if the way she was referring to the man who was killed was intentional. In her mind, she referred to him as a slave. I will not get into the the nomenclature because I realize that we have, of course, moved to referring to people who, who were once captured against their will to an enslaved person. But I understand that in the story, this is how she... This is how her captors are using the term. So that I very much get. But in her mind, would she refer to him, even to herself, as a slave? I don't think she would. I think she she would not do that. Not out of like a political resistance thing. I think she doesn't even have the energy for that. I think she just, she still thinks of, of the people around her as people with their own identity. That's what's believable to me. And if not, then I think there would be that shock. The shock of, oh my God, like this has now permeated my thoughts. Now I'm thinking in the way that they call us. I, I just wasn't sure, right? Like I just wanted more more clarity on that. And then finally, I wasn't clear on whether the harshness of her thoughts when it comes to the girl, she at one point says like, I, I hope this girl will choke on her own, I think it was tears or blood or I don't even know, but choke on her own fluids if it meant she would shut up and stop crying. Like I wasn't sure if that harshness was a part of her personality or a part of her circumstances. And either works. But I'd like to know. I'd like to see her either summoning a memory of, I don't know, her mom telling her to stop being so harsh to people, thus telling me that she's always been this way. Or maybe her thinking to herself, oh my God, this is who I've become. This is what five weeks of being in this situation has made me. Yeah, I just wanted more on her characterization is what I'm saying. So thank you for sharing. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Okay, Carly, let's go to your next query letter. Dear Carly, Bianca, and Cece, thank you for your brilliant podcast. I'm seeking representation for Heavy Metal Thunder, my 85,000 word work of book club fiction. Its music industry setting will rock fans of Taylor Jenkins Reid's Daisy Jones and the Six, and its complex family drama will appeal to lovers of Claire Lombardo's The Most Fun We Ever Had. Set in Berkeley in the 90s, Heavy Metal Thunder explores the lies we tell ourselves and the relationships they destroy. All Kate wants to do is play guitar, ever since her sister snuck her into a Night Ranger show as a kid. But her mother disapproves, and Kate's high school bandmates are more interested in her sex appeal than her guitar skills. Her sole confidant is Mr. B, her beloved gender nonconforming music teacher. But when Mr. B loses his job for violating school dress code and Kate is assaulted by a bandmate, Kate takes her future into her own hands. She joins a new band, signs with a record label, and foregoes college, dashing her mother's hopes in their relationship. In the band, Kate finds her people and dives headfirst 
first into drug, sex, and rock and roll. They tour the country, pose for magazines, and play the first Coachella. Their dreams are coming true. Meanwhile, Kate and her bandmate Tony battle their feelings for each other and Tony's drug addiction in a world of excess. But when an unplanned pregnancy forces Kate to quit her on-tour lifestyle, she hangs up her guitar, seemingly forever. Years later, Kate is a wife and a mother who adores her family but mourns her dormant passion, which she has hidden from her son Alex. Then a tragedy strikes, tearing their family apart. What's more, Kate discovers her mother's long-hidden secret, which explains so much. In grief, Kate picks up the guitar, rediscovering her true self, but Alex doesn't recognize the rock star mom in fear she's abandoning him when he needs her most. When Alex runs away, Kate must find him, mend fences with her mother, and learn that truth is more powerful than expectation. Heavy Metal Thunder is my debut novel. I'm a former journalist and most recently the San Francisco editor at HuffPost. I'm now a marketing director at a national CPG company specializing in PR and social media while raising two little rock star girls who enjoy playing Wild Thing on guitar. May I send you my manuscript? Thank you so much, Robin Wilkie Gregory. Thanks so much, Carly. As you read that title, Cece already started headbanging in the background here. You guys can't see it, but she's grooving down. So I'd say that's a really good title. Okay, Carly, word count and your take on that. All right, this one clocked in at 399 words. Okay, so first of all, we we love Claire Lombardo. Such a such a great book. The most fun we ever had. She's going to be at our deep dive series this spring. So we are very glad to be talking to Claire one on one in in a few weeks. Okay, so I think uh, I think my big question for this one is around the structure of the actual timeline here. Like we're covering a lot of time, right? So we have the teen years and then all the way to kind of motherhood. I'm assuming we're potentially covering like 20 years, right? Because she has a child and the child runs away. So I I really want to know structurally like how much time we're spending kind of in each space because the book is started by pitching us as a YA. This sounds like a YA, right? Like she's in high school. She's talking to her music teacher about guitar lessons. So when we pitch an adult book, we need to focus on why this matters for an adult audience. And we can, we can talk a little bit more in the pages about kind of how that shows up on the page. But I think from the query letter perspective, I really wanted to know how much time we're kind of spending in each category. And if it's a frame narrative and are we jumping around or is it kind of coming of age and we're looking back? Like there's just so many things I think structurally that I would just love to tune this query a little bit to kind of make sure that we understand how that's all going to work. As an FYI, there is a book coming out called The Lightning Bottles, which is Marissa Stapley's new novel. I don't know when it comes out. This does sound similar to that. I will tell you that. I haven't read her new book. I've just seen kind of the deal announcement for it. So keep an eye out for that one. Could it potentially be a comp, but uh, it's called The Lightning Bottles is, is the book title that it was announced as. I think those are kind of, those are my main notes. I mean, I think this is really interesting. It seems like we're kind of moving into a zeitgeist moment here because the Daisy Jones and the Six TV show is coming out pretty soon. We're going to be seeing a lot more, I think, in this space. So I think you're you're, you're on to something here. I don't know if we're going to be seeing like a flood of content like this, just something to keep an eye out. But uh, I think it's really interesting. Thank you, Carly. Before we move on to the pages, for our listeners who aren't aware what a frame narrative is, could you just give us a breakdown of that? Absolutely. So you can kind of imagine like a, a bookend kind of book where it's kind of used also in movies. Sometimes the prologues can kind of do this, but we're, we start the novel in an adult perspective and then we drop back and kind of to wherever is whether it's a kid or a teen and then we like build our way back up to where we left off at the very beginning yeah that's perfect thank you okay so what was in those opening pages 
All right, so we start with a timestamp of 1988. So we are at a bar in San Francisco. We have our main character here. She's with her sister. She has been kind of dressed up to look like she belongs at the club, but she's 10 years old. So we have a 10 year old at the bar and then we kind of move back really quickly um, in time to say like earlier that day kind of thing. Her sister has to babysit and her sister's like, I can't bring like my little sister to this club that we want to go to see this band. So all of a sudden her and her friends start this like makeover on this 10 year old to kind of make it look like maybe she could be there. Her older sister is only 16. So no matter what, they're under the age of 21 they get into the club because one of the sister's friends kind of schmoozes the bouncer a little bit and they make their way in. Our 10-year-old protagonist is completely enthralled with what's happening, the smells, the sounds, everything about it, completely taken over by it. And then bouncer grabs her and it's like, what are you doing here? Like, you're only 10, right? And kind of they all, all of the teens get in trouble and they kind of kick them out and say, don't want to see you here again. The sister says, you're not going to tell mom and dad. And she says, no. And that's where we are. Wonderful. Thank you. Okay, what was your take on them? All right. So as I mentioned in the query letter, I was really interested to see tonally how we were going to address these these jumps in times and how we reflect back on the past and, and all of that. So the tone is very much looking back. So the opening line is the seedy bar wedged beside the San Francisco pier was no place for children. And yet there I was within a sea of spandex and leather 10 years old. So we do have this idea that like there is a bit of reflection, right? And retrospection. So that that tells me that this book is for adults. It is not necessarily a book for teens. So that was that was an important answer to my question. The book has really good energy to it. Like I really feel like we were in the club and hearing the loud noises and the smells and the sticky floors and everybody drinking. And, you know, I just I really got that energy. So I really, really thought that was a very well done part of this book. I think what I am still just not clear about is do we continue in chronological order? Are we jumping around? How long are we going to spend in each kind of age group? I know on the podcast, I have talked a little bit about this before. So I don't want to repeat myself. But I do feel like there's some work to be done to just really clarify why this is for an adult audience. And when you start in a teen POV, you just you risk losing the attention of editors and agents just from the beginning, which I just don't think you're setting yourself up for the most success when really this is a very interesting book. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Okay, Cece, let's go to the last query letter. Dear Bianca, Cece, and Carly, I would like to introduce you to my novel, Doppelganger. At 98,000 words, the psychological thriller was inspired by the women who raised me since birth and will be well-loved by readers who enjoy The Push by Ashley Audrain, The Woman in the Window by A.J. Finn, and the literary mystery style writing of Tana French. I had pitched the first two pages of this manuscript to Carly at the Killer Nashville Conference earlier this year, and after hearing of Cece's draw to books similar to The Push, I wanted to try my luck with books with hooks. Lorraine White is the daughter of a psychopath. Tragedy struck the day Lorraine realized her children had also inherited her mother's psychopathy, her darkness, turning her lifelong dream of becoming a mother into a nightmare on the verge. Now working as an anonymous tip line operator, Lorraine finds purpose in helping to bring home the missing children of Cage County, Texas. But when Charlie Followell returns home after a 10-year absence, the two local girls disappear. Lorraine quickly connects the dots between Charlie Followell and the latest missing girls. 
their uncanny resemblance to each other a perfect match for her son's type. With the first piece of evidence found in her son's bedroom, Mrs. White's teenage son becomes her prime suspect for the murder of the two missing-turned-runaway girls. This machinate mother goes mad, collecting clues from the locals in attempt to pin his murders on one of their neighbors, but realizing along the way that when your bloodline is cursed, there may never be a frame perfect enough to hide life's darkest truth. We all grow up to be our parents. I am a certified author, accelerator, book coach living in Nashville, Tennessee, and my writing has been published in Ellis County Down Home online magazine. Doppelganger is a novel that copes with the pains of domestic toxicity between husbands and wives, my parents, its lifelong effects on their children, my brothers and myself, and the blind eye threat that Southern complacency has on small town neighbors. An anecdote to the visceral struggles I faced when returning to my hometown, I remained honored that you have taken the time to read my submission in full and hope to have captivated your attention in a way that proves unique to authors before me. Would you be open to receiving my full manuscript? Thank you for your time, Trevor Brooks. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Okay, what was the word count there and what was your take on that? This is 409 words long. So... Thank you so much for all the kind words. Okay, so let's dissect this plot paragraph. I had a lot of questions and I will confess that at one point I thought maybe this is just me. Maybe I am too tired. I read this on a day that I was really tired, but in fairness, that's most days. And I think that's true for most agents. But I had, I was just very confused by a few things. So for example, the line, turning her lifelong dream of becoming a mother into a nightmare on the verge. That's vague. I don't know what that means. Like, I don't know if her kids died. When I read that line, right? Later on, I, I did figure out that they did not die. But when I read that line, I was like, wait, is it because they died? Is it because they committed murder and then they died? Maybe they didn't die. They're missing. Like, they're in prison. Lines like that are really, really great when it comes to, like, explaining someone's emotion. But without the facts to back it up, I get confused. I don't know what become like what this nightmare looks like which is okay as long as later on in the paragraph I have some sense I kept having questions though so for example Charlie Followill are we supposed to know who that is because I didn't I also didn't understand like there's a line that says Charlie Followill and the late missing girls like she connects the dots between this Charlie person and the latest missing girls their uncanny resemblance to each other does that mean that the two girls look alike or that Charlie and the two girls look like the, all three of them like I just I didn't know what the author meant later on the protagonist is referred to as Mrs. White as opposed to Lorraine and that just felt confusing to me because like, I, I, of course, knew that we met Lorraine, but I didn't know whether maybe there was some other Mrs. White. When he says she goes mad, literally, like she's losing her mind? Or is this supposed to just indicate that we don't know who she can trust? I would just start over when it comes to the plot paragraph. It, it's clearly there's a story here. Clearly, there's a lot of plot. But I'm just way too confused about the connection with Charlie, with these girls who are missing. I don't understand how they're now runaways. Yeah, I'm just quite confused. And I will say also that the author paragraph is perfect. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. I can't hear the name Lorraine without thinking of my husband constantly singing I Miss Lorraine down in Africa. Right. So that is a South African joke. Okay. Cece, will you tell us what was in those opening pages? Cece Google South African joke Lorraine. I don't get it. Um, okay. No, it's, it's the Toto song I Miss Lorraine down in Africa. Okay. I don't know that song. Are you going to make her sing it? Are you going to make her sing the song? Excellent idea. No, I can't 
not sick. It's terrible. But I miss the rains. I miss the rains down in Africa. And it sounds like he's saying, I miss Lorraine down in Africa. Okay, never mind. <laughs> I thought it was bless the rain. I'm pretty sure it's I miss the rains down in Africa. <laughs> Damn it. Now we're all going to have to Google this. Damn it, Trevor. Look at what you've started. Right. Opening pages, Cece. I will, I will take a hum. I will negotiate it down to a hum. Hum for me. Hum, hum for us. <laughs> okay. So here's what's happening in the opening pages. Our protagonist, Lorraine, is watching her children sleep. She has hidden baby monitors in their rooms, but she doesn't trust what she sees in the monitors. So she has to actually go and stand outside their rooms and watch them sleep. She's thinking to herself that she's a daughter of a psychopath, that she's thinking about the missing girl, Catherine. She's feeling regret. Arson, Arson is her son, broke up with Catherine recently and like earlier in the year. And she's thinking of how she discarded evidence of whatever Arson did to Catherine that's really incriminating from his clothes on the day that Catherine disappeared. And this is obviously something that's that's hard for her, but she understands that it's something she has to do because as a mother, that's what she does. She goes into her daughter's room. Her daughter's called Alibi, and she's creeped out by the dolls in the room. And finally, she looks at the TV and the missing girl's name, Catherine Myers, officially becomes a runaway. She sighs this sigh of relief, I suppose. Arson is innocent. And then there's a phone call and... She thinks to herself, oh, it's the anonymous tip line ringing. Somebody knows something. And that's where the pages end. Awesome. Thank you. Okay. What was your take on them? So this is very voicey, really well done in terms of the voice. The protagonist is both very observant and very self-aware, which is so important and so hard to do when it comes to psychological thrillers. Great job. I do think certain elements need to be made clear. This is similar, a similar note to the query letter, only now I'm referencing the pages. Catherine is declared a runaway, for example. This is mentioned at the top of the pages, saying that all the girls in their town who are missing become runaways. And then there's also the reveal on the TV screen that she's a runaway, and then the protagonist is relieved. So I don't get it. Like, like I don't understand, do literally all the girls get declared runaways? In order for someone to be declared a runaway, I imagine there has to be like evidence that they ran away, like a note they left behind or something, right? Because if they're underage, they're a missing child, unless they are a runaway. So I just was not clear on that situation at all. And I really wanted to be because I think that that's an important plot point. And I don't think that that should be like, there shouldn't be a mystery revolving that specific element of the plot. Her reasons for thinking that Arson has a darkness in him are clear, but not alibi. Like the scene that we saw in her room with the dolls is a normal doll scene as far as I could tell. Didn't seem super realistic, her thinking that both her children were lost causes right from the beginning. Wouldn't it be better to have like her find out that alibi also has darkness later that could be like a plot point that happens later i just didn't understand why like the story had to begin with her essentially like okay both my children are imbued by darkness there were a few plausibility issues so for example she's been counting their red flags since birth and she has like an exact number in the thousands that's not realistic to me like she would be like an exhausted uh, mother with newborn and then later on with you know a, a, a toddler possibly not a toddler but like a small child and then a newborn and like I don't think she'd be counting or keeping that that number with that specificity her interiority could go deeper so for example her lack of hesitation when she knew what she had to do when she found the incriminating clothes in Arson's room or if the intention is to show that she never hesitates 
than her self-awareness that she didn't even go there. Not just the hesitation, but the resistance. Maybe like she didn't believe at first what, that Arson had done what he had done. Uh, perhaps guilt for her immediately believing that. I just felt like deeper, right? You have to dig. Writing emotion, writing interiority is about digging. The many, many layers of emotionality and the many, many layers of consciousness. So I wonder at the end of the day, given all these notes, which all our Kofi subscribers will be able to tell exactly what passage made me think what thing, but I wonder if it wouldn't be better to start with a scene in which she isn't essentially alone. Like I know she's not technically alone because she's observing her two children asleep, but I'm not sure that that's the best place to start the story. Too much of the psychological tension is riding on her character and without contrast, it's hard to do that. So I don't know. There's also no like fear of like, because if they wake up and see that she's watching them, that's okay because she's a mom. She gets to be watching them. So there's no tension there either. But I don't know. I think I would rethink the starting point. And thank you for sharing. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. I have now gone back to Google it and it is I bless the rain down in Africa. So I'm going to call my husband a dumbass, but now he can start singing I bless the rain down in Africa. So we'll just refrain. <laughs> right. We won't have to, we won't sing it for you. There you go. Everybody else can go listen to it now. <laughs> yeah, that is your reward. We won't sing it for you. Right. Thank you, Carly and Cece, for your wonderful critiques. Now let's go to today's guest. My youngest son starts kindergarten this year. I can't believe it. One of the tricky things, though, about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are very lucky, though, to live in Ottawa, which is a bilingual city of a million people. And we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So it's going to be really easy for our kids to pick it up at a young age through school and sports activities. But me, on the other hand, growing up where French class wasn't taken too seriously and we goofed off. I am so sorry, Madame Corrigan. We're going to have to make up the difference. And that is where Rosetta Stone comes in as the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. And it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. Immersion is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio to audio from native speakers, and then gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. So you can really hone those pronunciations, which we know is key to sounding fluent. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program to get because they have been the expert for 30 years and used by millions, thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language learning training online. Of all the apps, it is the best at speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of native speakers. Rosetta Stone has a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent built into the program. So as you practice speaking, you're going to get your feedback on how well you're pronouncing words, other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of a one-hour private tutoring session. But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off. That is lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off, a complete steal. 
Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's visit rosettastone.com slash today. 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Today's guest is the USA Today best-selling author of 14 novels of suspense. She has also won multiple prestigious awards for her crime fiction, including five Agathas, five Anthonys, and the coveted Mary Higgins Clark Award. She's also the on-air investigative reporter for Boston's WHDH-TV and has won 37 Emmys, 14 Edward R. Murrow Awards, and dozens of other honors for her groundbreaking journalism. National book reviews have called her a master at crafting suspenseful mysteries and a superb and gifted storyteller. Her novels have been named Best Thrillers of the Year by Library Journal, New York Post, BookBub, Pop Sugar, Real Simple Magazine, and others. Her current book is The House Guest, a story of psychological manipulation that explores the dark heart of marriage and friendship. It's Gaslight meets Thelma and Louise. The Library Journal starred reviews calls it binge-worthy. It's my pleasure to welcome Hank Philippi Ryan. Hank, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm such a fan. Ah, thank you, Hank. We're huge fans of yours as well. And for our listeners who aren't aware, Hank is going to be one of our speakers at our upcoming Deep Dive Workshop series, which is going to be such an amazing 10-week series. And we're super, super excited to have Hank be a part of that. Now, I just want to read the blurb to our listeners, Hank, so that they know the context of what we're talking about. Here we go. After every divorce, one spouse gets all the friends. What does the other one get? If they're smart, they get the benefits. Alyssa McCallan has been dumped by her wealthy and manipulative husband, and now she's terrified that her toxic, soon-to-be ex is scheming to ruin her, leaving her penniless and alone. Just when Alyssa could really use a friend, she makes one, a seductive new friend who's running from a dangerous relationship of her own. Alyssa offers Brie Laurence the safety of her guest house and the two become confidants. Then Brie makes a tempting offer. Maybe they can solve each other's problems, but no one is who they seem. And the fates and fortunes of these two determined women twist and turn until the shocking truth emerges. You can't always get what you want, but sometimes you get what you deserve. Dun, dun, dun. I love hearing that. Thank you. I thought, oh, that sounds good. And then I thought... <laughs> I wrote that. How interesting. 
Amazing. So I have a ton of questions for you today, Hank. But before I begin with all of that, something I'd like to talk about is all of those awards and your amazing longevity in an industry which is increasingly becoming so difficult for people to break into and then stay in because we see a ton of debut authors coming out with their big debut and then we never hear from them again or they write a soft novel that then tanks and then we never hear from them again. Can you speak a bit about your career and and all of these awards and the fact that you are still here, not just still here, but kicking ass and taking names? Oh, I love that. I'm writing it down. Thank you. That is such a good question. And I think about that probably more than I should. I think there are a couple of levels of it. When I started, I just didn't know that there was such a thing as this marathon. I'd been a television reporter for more than 30 years when I started writing fiction. And television is incredibly competitive. It's zero sum. Either you get the story or you don't. Either you're first or you're not. Either you win or you lose. I mean, it's just very cut and dry. And I've been used to this sort of underlying competition my whole life. So when I started writing fiction and I was such a newbie, oh my golly, I didn't know anything. I didn't even know what I didn't know. I didn't even know what to ask. And we can talk about that. But I went at it with the same sort of determination that I did in journalism, that I was going to give 100% at every minute to every person, to every element of my story, that I was obsessed, that I was compelled to write. I didn't think that anything was going to get in my way. I didn't think about the world of publishing or the world of whoever else was out there. I just thought, I have this great story. And, you know, as a journalist, when you hear, oh, that's a great story, that's the highest accolade. And I sort of emotionally knew that the book that I was writing, my first book, was good. It was a good story. And and so there was nothing in my way about it. And I think, and now that I've been writing, I mean, I'm 73, if you can imagine. Now I've been writing for however many years it is, 17. I just still do that. I give 100% every moment. Everything I do is the absolute best I can do. I never give up. You know, when I have a wave of deadly envy, and it's very difficult to avoid that, I think, doesn't matter, doesn't matter, just go ahead. Just one, you know, just one word after the other word. And you just think, you can't control the world. It's just impossible. And all of us who try to, it's not going to work. In essence, all we have is our book. All we can do is do the best we can do. And then luck and time and randomness and coincidence, all those things come into play. But unless you have that really special book that you believe in, None of that's going to matter. You have to be ready for the thing, you know, whatever the thing turns out to be. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it really does. And something you said there resonated with me. And I think this is the key for so many emerging authors without them realizing that it's the key. Because I think having been in journalism, which I imagine is cutthroat in its own way, you had to develop a thick skin. Because I think you'll have a lot of criticism leveled at you and a lot of people who are constantly giving input or critiquing your work or how you go about it. And I think that's a huge problem these days with emerging writers. And something that I do on the podcast is I set emerging writers up with critique partners because it gives me the shivers when I hear someone is trying to get published, but they've never had anyone 
critique their work. And then the very first time their work gets critiqued, their feelings are so hurt and they're so devastated by this feedback that it almost becomes debilitating. But to be a writer, you need to be thick-skinned. You need to welcome the criticism in a way because that's what helps you make the work better and you need to be prepared to roll with those punches. Do you, do you agree with that? I think you're so right. I think you're completely on the money. I think that's the key. And I'll give you a little background about it. As a reporter, as an investigative reporter, I work with a producer. I write the stories and we collaborate on the production. Then I have an executive producer who oversees the whole thing. And then I have a news director who oversees all of that. So every single one of my stories has to go through the executive producer and then the news director. And then they each tell what they think about it. And they each, they have input. I mean, one of my pals who also is a journalist used to say, anybody who can change something that you write will change it. Okay. So that aside, but for all those years before I started writing fiction, I was working with a group of people who were just as interested in having my news stories as be the best they possibly could, just as interested as I was. And one of the really key things that I learned was that I could be wrong and that someone else might have a good idea. And the idea of being open to that, to have your brain welcome the input from someone who you respect and just take a moment to think, hmm, what if that's a good idea? Now, it might not be, and you don't have to do that thing. But I think it is destructive. It's downright destructive and debilitating to put up such a wall to collaboration, to input, to the critiquing of a person who you respect. And I think that's important because you're not going to learn from that. Your, your, your book isn't going to get better if someone is more experienced than you are and looks at your work and says, you know, your point of view is off. And if you say, what's point of view? You know, you're in trouble. So there are things you need to know and there are things that teachers can help you with. And when you look at it that way, if you, for instance, if you're trying to learn how to speak French, you wouldn't expect to know how to do that overnight. You need guidance and help and practice and experience and input, just like you do when writing a novel. Now, quickly, I can tell you, sometimes it's confusing. And I think that's what stops people. When I started writing, I had a sort of wacky practice book that I should never have written. Long story for another time. So I thought, ah, I'm on television. Everybody will buy this instantly. So I sent it to two agents thinking, well, they'll just have to fight it out because they're both going to love this. And I quickly got back from one agent, a letter that said something along the lines of, this is the best plot I've ever read in my entire life, but your writing is terrible. So then the other one, <laughs> the other one came back with, you are the best writer I've encountered in a long time, but this is the worst plot I've ever heard. And uh, Bianca, I just stopped. I just thought, well, I don't know how to do this and I'm not going to do it. And if nobody loves me, I'm just not going to do it anymore. And you know, I'm sure now, after all these years, they were both just sort of trying to let me down easy. They had just picked a thing to tell me. But that stopped me in my tracks. But when I had my next good idea, I thought, I don't care what they say. I'm going to, I'm going to persevere. And the next time, everybody said yes. So it's just about the thick skin is so important because you have to take it in, see if it matters, and then go on. 
Yeah, and once the book gets published, then there's the professional reviews, there's Goodreads uh-huh. readers, there's people on Instagram who have a lot of fun in tagging authors on eviscerating reviews. So, you know, there's all of that. So you really do have to build up, you know, a bit of a callus around your feelings. Right. Something I want to talk about is the timeline of your latest book. So a mistake I made with my debut novel is it spanned four decades. And then, you know, editors were like, we like the story. It's just wildly ambitious. Pick one period of time, focus on that. So the novel became one year and three months. With my latest book, I based it in like a week. It was just over a week because you've got this pressure cooker situation. And you've done something similar in your novel. It takes place also in just over a week. Is that something that you like to use as a literary device because it adds that tension and it helps with pacing? Or was it something that was very particular to this book? I think that the ticking time bomb, the ticking clock, the pressure, the intensity adds to the reader's desire to keep turning the pages. I mean, I want people to miss their stop on the subway because they can't put this book down. You will never hear in my books, after a leisurely dinner, or two weeks later, you're not going to hear that. It's going to be next, 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 next. You're going to have people who haven't had any sleep. You're going to have people who haven't had any food. You're going to have to have people who have a deadline like I did for all those years in television, because that's what makes a book compelling to me. I want people to say, I can't wait to find out what happens. And so that requires, I mean, I have a timeline by my by my computer. I mean, I work on a computer, but I have a paper, you know, a a very high-tech legal pad, I have to say, by my desk, which keeps track of the time. Because that persistence, that consistent forward motion, that advancing of the plot is what's going to keep people reading. I love that narrative thrust, that power that you're just moving forward relentlessly. And I think that's in the kind of book I write. In the kind of book I write, which is psychological thrillers, I think that's incredibly important. So thank you for noticing that. I love that. I mean, it's you know, it's a it's about pacing. My you know, my books are about pacing. Yeah, and something that I noticed that you did as well, and I want to point it out to our listeners. So when you begin a book, there are so many different decisions that you can make about that book. That book can go in an infinite number of directions based on the decisions that you make. And in terms of a story's timeline, you can have a linear timeline where the story begins on one day and it ends a week later, or you can have sort of backwards and forwards jumping around in terms of the timeline. Something Hank has done, and it wasn't something that I picked up immediately because she did it so incredibly well. I really had to pay attention was that Hank plays around with timeline on a scene level. So most people in a scene have a scene happen linearly. The person you know, wakes up and they go through their day and X, Y, Z happens and that's it. What Hank tends to do is she leaves you on a cliffhanger in one chapter. In the next chapter, you think you're going to the minute after the cliffhanger, but that doesn't happen. You're perhaps on the next day where something else is happening and then Hank cuts back to what previously happened in a flashback, which is not something you see authors do often. So how did you come by this kind of technique and what do you think it adds to the story? I'm just sitting here in awe of your deconstruction of my novels. I, it's, you know, it's hard enough to think of a brilliant reader reading them, but to have a brilliant editor also looking at them like you are and 
figuring out how I did what I did. It's scary, Bianca. It's scary. (laughs) For me to deconstruct it, let me just say that we were talking about pacing and we were talking about keeping the action going forward. So in my opinion, and it may not be everyone's, in my opinion, if a scene goes on and on and on and you need to have some information in that scene and I want my chapters to be shortish, I don't want the next chapter to feel like a continuation of the chapter before. I want the reader to understand we're going ahead and the next thing is going to happen and we're going to be somewhere else. So trust me on this, this is even gonna be better. So I give you a little taste of what's going to happen next, somebody arriving somewhere else or someone knocking at the door and then the person answers the door and then something happens and they remember or take us back to what happened before, and then this, then the action starts again. So it's like this little donut of newness on the outside, a creamy feeling of backstory on the inside, and then come back to now, I open the door and she's standing there. It's a juggle because the reader, I rely on my readers to be smart. I rely on my readers to really read with thought as you do. And it's not hard to understand. It's complex, but it's not complicated. I mean, you're in on it because you're in the character's head. And this is how people think. You know, when you open the door and you think, oh, Jimmy, I remember the time that, you know, the last time he came, X, Y, and Z happened. So I also have to say to you that I don't really think about it that much while I'm doing it. It's how the story has to be. So later I look at it and think, oh, you did that again. You know, you did the Hank Tuck again. And I, and I try to figure out if it works. So sometimes I undo those, but sometimes I think that they're great for the pacing because it allows the book to move ahead, but give you still all the information that you need. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of emerging writers go, how do I know when to end a chapter? How do I know when to begin a new chapter? If it's still the same scene, if they're still in the same house and it's the same two characters, should it just be one hell of a long chapter until the end of that? And what you do addresses that so perfectly because you can end a chapter on a cliffhanger where the character has thoughts. But then, like you say, you're not just going to the next chapter, which is the exact same scene, just continuing forward. And it allows for the writer to have fun with timeline and to jump around a bit and to keep the reader having questions. Because I think if you leave a chapter on a cliffhanger with the reader having a question, and then you answer that question on the first page of the next chapter, you've lost the tension. Whereas the longer you can make them wait for that particular answer to find out what happened, the more tension there is. And it's amazing way of doing that. And I think it's your signature, you know, your fingerprint as an author. I think as authors, we all have little things that we do that even if they ran our work through artificial intelligence without our name attached to it, they'd find certain consistencies there. So you called it the Hank Tuck. For our listeners, go get the book and find out how Hank does the Hank Tuck because it's it's really awesome. And it's something that might work in your own stories. Right. So something we often say on the podcast, because we have two literary agents that are co-hosts and we read and critique query letters and opening pages to help writers really polish them so that when they go out to their dream agents, they're much more likely to get requests for full manuscripts, etc. And something we tell emerging writers to guard against is having a character begin in a scene alone where they're sitting by themselves, where they're thinking about things, because then the scene can become 
too interior, too thought-driven, etc. And sometimes it's static and therefore boring. You broke that rule. You begin with Alyssa sitting in this bar in this hotel. She's by herself. She's thinking. And then at the end of the scene, she meets someone. So what advice do you have for authors who go, I really have to begin with this character by themselves, but how can I make it compelling so that it doesn't feel static and boring? Oh my golly, you know, that opening scene, which I love, has a lot going on. It's She is sitting in a bar thinking, but it gives the reader every bit of background of her story through a forward motion. Her husband has left her. She, what if she has no money? She certainly has no friends. She's absolutely alone. She can't understand it. She's baffled that he's gone. Now she's she's alone. But there are other people in that scene. Her husband is in the scene when she remembers how he walked out and exactly how it sounded and exactly how it smelled and exactly what he said and exactly what he looked like. So I think that the movie in the reader's mind is not just her in the bar. The actual scene takes place in several places with several people. I do to when I teach classes, I talk about bog sat to avoid bog sat, which is bunch of guys sitting around talking. So the, the, you know, B-O-G-S-A-T. So the yammer, 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 introducing too many characters is equally bad. You know, having someone waking up, a dream is the one thing I would say, don't start with a dream because that's a false promise. But, you know, someone in the bathtub thinking or having a cup of coffee thinking or just sitting in a park thinking, that's not visual. The house guest opens, yes, in a bar, which is very visual, but it takes place somewhere else. It takes place in Alyssa's life and in her country club and in her kitchen and in her marriage. So the movie is different. The movie in your mind is different than just having one person in one scene. I do have to talk to you a little bit about, I do want to tell you about my query letters because that was actually an incredible experience. When I sent out my query letters for my first book, I started out with an aging television reporter wonders what it's like when you're married to your job in journalism and the camera doesn't love you anymore. And that was what the book was about. That was the main character. And everybody said, no, 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 no. So I thought, hmm, this is a really good book. Maybe I am describing it incorrectly. So I changed my query letter to begin this way. What if all that annoying spam clogging your email is really secret messages? And I, everybody said yes. Everybody said yes. So when I gave them a story that they had never heard before, right off the bat, that's what they wanted. When I gave them a, a whiny aging character, nobody read any farther than that. So I, I do think that often in query letters, it's that one first line. If you can get them on the first line to make them read the next line and the next line, it's probably going to be more successful. Yeah. It certainly was for me. And it is in the way you frame it because we've had Stephen Rowley on the podcast as well. And he was talking about how he tried to get an agent for Lily and the Octopus, which did immensely well. And he realized that he was selling it wrong. He was talking about a dachshund who had an octopus on its head, whereas in fact, the whole book was a metaphor for grief. And this dachshund had a tumor on its brain. And, and the whole book was an exploration of grief and this 
intensely personal relationship he had with this dog who was who gave him so much emotionally and while he was telling people that it was about a dog with an octopus on its head everybody was like no and as soon as it was kind of reframed as this is an exploration of grief etc then it was yes so it is this is such a good point Hanks made sometimes it's not about ripping apart your entire manuscript and starting again sometimes it's just about reframing how you see it and how you pitch it It's so interesting because the way I came up with that solution was I was, as a reporter, I was out in the news car with a photographer, a photographer who was, you know, maybe 30 something, a guy. And he said, I hear you're writing a book. What's it about? Well, here I was an aging television reporter who was worried that, you know, she was getting too old for television. So I thought, well, he's not going to want to hear that. So I thought, what can I tell him that's going to interest him? And I said, well, so what if all that spam in your email is really secret messages from a financial cabal? And he goes, oh, that's pretty interesting. So I thought, okay, if Bill likes it, then maybe an agent will like it. So I tried it out on a real person to see what would get them to say, ooh, I need to read that because that's what you're going for. Ooh, I need to read that. Such smart advice. Hank, we're at the end of our time. I'm not quite sure how that happened. For our listeners, we are going to link to Hank's books on our bookshop.org affiliate page. Her latest book is The House Guest. And there's a ton of other books that we'll link to as well because they're all phenomenal. Go see what the Hank Tuck is all about. And Hank, we wish you much luck with this book. And we hope to have you back for the next one. I'd love to. I love talking to you. I agree with you. The time just flew by. We have so much more to talk about, and I hope we'll do that the next time. And we look forward to having you at the Deep Dive Workshop Series. I wish I'd had that when I started, let me tell you. It's quite a joy to be able to teach there and such an honor to be able to teach there as well. So I hope we see you all there. Thanks, Hank. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Great news! The beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. 
And if you can't attend the webinar and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A Agent. I hope to see you there. Great news. The beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Lira Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A Agent. I hope to see you there.